Our scripture once again is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20, those three verses for a third time. You'll know the title of this message is The Enemies of Truth. We've been discussing the matter of spiritual warfare. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Almighty God, we would ask for your Holy Spirit to be the one guiding and leading us as we consider your word this morning. Uh, We would pray that uh, what uh, any kind of of human endeavor can ever accomplish, uh, that you would accomplish. Open up our hearts and minds to a true accurate, and right understanding of Scripture. And further, work your word in us with its performative power that it would enable us to be what you want us to be, to obey what you command us, to conform to the image of your Son in all things to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds, understanding our calling in this world to be salt and to be light, looking at every day as an opportunity to carry out the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. We pray that as we listen to Scripture, as we understand Scripture, we would know who we are and what we are about because we have known you and your saving grace toward us in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by just stating something that ought to be obvious, simple. The business of the church is the church's business. The business of the church is the church's ministry. The business of the church is what Scripture says the church is all about which means that the people of God and the church of God need to attend to their business. Now, the letter of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, the message that we find in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is speaking to the elders at Miletus, even the first of those seven epistles which we find in the book of Revelation that Jesus has authored toward the church at Ephesus, All of these messages to the church at Ephesus would remind us that the business of the church is all about the church, what God wants the church to be, what Christ died for the church to be. Now, this is important for us to remember because in everything we're going to be looking at and everything we're going to be reading and expounding as we continue in the book of 1 Timothy, we need to appreciate Paul's missional focused communication to Timothy. Paul states 
several uh, what we might call uh, complementary themes and objectives and aims as he teaches. But very clearly, the aim of Paul is that the church would understand its relationship to the truth of the living God. If you were to look at the 16th verse in chapter 3, you would find that Paul would be saying to Timothy something like this, actually the 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that you may know, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we would take the word buttress and substitute the word foundation, support. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we are, and that's what we are about, and that's what we must be doing. So in all that Paul writes to Timothy, the concern is that Timothy would understand the business of the church. The business of the church is to be the pillar and support of God's truth, God's gospel truth revealed in Christ. Uh, When the church deviates from that, uh, the church weakens its witness and testimony in the world and runs the risk of losing a clear grasp of the gospel. That only message, that message, that only this message itself can ever rescue human beings from the depravity of sin and the brokenness by the fall. And so keeping that front and center is absolutely essential. And Paul is writing to Timothy, the lead pastor at this church, to make sure that he understands what his orders are. And he writes to him in such a way as to impress upon him that what is going on between the church and the world is nothing less than spiritual warfare. And therefore, Timothy, your calling is to be like a very good soldier who is soldiering in a campaign that has ultimate and eternal significance. You must be that good soldier who campaigns faithfully on behalf of the church, on behalf of the gospel in the world. But we would also note that Paul's letter to Timothy, as we have mentioned, wasn't written just to Timothy. It wasn't a private message. It was, in fact, written so that Timothy would explain this and share this and present this to the entire church at Ephesus so that all would understand the calling of the pastor or the calling of the elders, but they would also understand that whatever the calling of the elder happens to be, the elder within the church, the shepherds within the church, that whatever their calling is, all believers to some extent have the same concerns and in their own respective manner of living as a Christian, the same calling. Spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare the church is in, allows no believer to be a non-combatant. Every Christian is a soldier engaged in this warfare. Now, that's the way it is since Genesis chapter 3. Uh, The entire history of the human race is Christ coming in to undo 
everything which Satan accomplished by deceiving our first parents and to undo what Satan has done in such a way that the last estate of redeemed humanity is even greater than the first estate of original humanity because where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. Now, I want us to think about the larger uh, significance of the passage that we're looking at. We've said this uh, before, so saying this again is important. Uh, To live gospel-centered lives with full commitment to the truth of Christ and the love of Christ, we must see this Christian life then as a spiritual war in which we are engaged against enemies, the enemies of the truth. Now, that's what we see out of these three verses here, 18, 19, and 20. That's the large idea that wraps around three very distinct ideas, of which two we've already considered. These three distinct ideas involve, first of all, the recognition that there is this warfare. You can't live the Christian life if you are oblivious or ignorant or in denial with respect to this warfare. We also have seen the necessity for every believer to engage in this warfare. And today we're going to look at the human enemies that we are engaged with with respect to this warfare. Engaging those who are the human combatants in spiritual war. Now, let me state the main idea of this last part this way. The main idea is simply this. When spiritual warfare must take on human enemies, human enemies of the gospel, the church must labor faithfully to protect the people of God, to protect and promote the truth of the gospel, while seeking to reclaim the enemies of Christ. I'll say that again. When there are human enemies of the gospel, when our spiritual warfare engages people and personalities who have set themselves up against God's truth and God's gospel, it's the church's response to faithfully labor to protect the people of God, to both protect and to promote the truth of the gospel, while seeking to reclaim those who have made themselves enemies of the cross. Now, that's totally in line with one of the themes of this whole passage that we've been looking at. Because if you go back to verse 5, where Paul says, um, the aim of our charge is, or the goal of our instruction that carries the forth of a commandment is, if you go back and look at verse 5, the aim, the objective, the goal is love. God's kind of love. Uh, The kind of love that embraces sinful human beings. Uh, that kind of love that exemplifies ultimately in terms of the person who has experienced such love and who carries such love and maturity, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul speaks to that. So even as we think about the human enemies of the gospel, the human enemies that we're going to be concerned about as we see it in this passage, 
it's not only the protection of the church, it's not only the promotion of the gospel, but we've got to be concerned about reclaiming those who have, even as the passage would say, made shipwreck of their faith. So, we're going to look at that. There are three things I want us to see. I know I've enumerated a number of things here, but here are the three particular things for today. We need to consider the source with respect to those who are human enemies. Where do they come from? Secondly, we need to think about the qualification. What are the spiritual qualifications of those who would address human enemies? And then thirdly, we need to understand what actions, what are the actions which the church must take uh, to protect the gospel or to protect the people of God, to promote the gospel, and then also to reclaim those who are lost. Now, first, the source of the enemies who oppose the truth. The war is spiritual. And ultimately, as we've seen, the enemies of the kingdom of God are themselves principalities and powers of darkness. But that which finds its source and origin in the principality, the principalities and powers of darkness over which Satan is the one who is the ruling spirit of the air, that opposition becomes incarnate in human forms, in human individuals, in people. That which has its anchorage ultimately in the world of spiritual darkness will always show up as it has for the last 2,000 years in human form. In the church and fighting the church. Finding their origin in the church and then fighting the truth of the gospel. Or as we're going to see, those who are the true enemies of the church or the worst enemies of the church have always arisen from within the church. We see it here. Paul names two such individuals in verses 19 and 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And we note the verb that's connected to what they were doing. They have rejected that which is essential to someone who's going to carry the gospel the way he should. They have rejected a sincere faith and a good conscience. They've made shipwreck of their faith. But the word rejected there is a very, very strong word. They have rejected what it took to be a follower of Christ. And they've made shipwreck of their faith. A, a very powerful picture. Uh, imagine uh, one of those uh, many-sailed uh, ships that used to uh, run on the oceans. Imagine one of those hitting the barrier reef or something, hitting something and just crashing, shipwrecked of their faith. And they've done this in such a manner that their teaching, Paul says, is nothing less than blasphemy. Where did they come from? They came from inside the church. Now, that the spiritual enemies of the church that show up in human form arise from within the church is something that Paul had already declared to the Ephesians back in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. We have that whole passage ultimately focusing upon these verses in 28 to 30. 
pay careful attention, Paul says, to the elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he's obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, um, it's going to happen. He's saying to Timothy, look, it's already happened. You've got a couple of men who are the spirit or the uh, ringleaders of, of this bad doctrine and teaching that's going on. They have to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. The, the New Testament gives us similar warnings, so we need to know this is not just something peculiar to the church at Ephesus. Second uh, John chapter, chapter. Second John. There's no chapter, just one chapter. Second John verses seven, eight, and nine read this way: For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, you see, they had been with the church, and now they had gone out and ahead, that has gone out and away. Uh, what, Paul, what John is referring to here is that they were teaching that there is a now more sophisticated way of understanding the Christ. Uh, so this is what we would call the Gnosticism that was beginning within the first century. There is a far more spiritual understanding of Christ than this Christ that you have been confessing. And John is saying, if you don't really confess the true Christ who has come in the flesh, then you don't have God. But where were they? They were in the church. Jude says this, verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, I would think that you would see people who were creeping into church. <laughs> they would be noticed. <laughs> Obviously, there's a, it's a metaphorical here of people who have, in a manner of stealth, come into the people of God or among the people of God. And Jude says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. For them to come in and to begin teaching and falsely ministering this way would mean that they're pretty slick. <laughs> they're pretty clever. It takes some discernment to see and diagnose what's happening. Second Peter, he writes, chapter 2, 1 to 2, But false prophets also arose among the people under the Old Covenant, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice the connection, Peter, the word blaspheme, the concept of blaspheme, because that's what the teaching was happening. 
That's what Hymenius and Alexander were guilty of, teaching that was blaspheme the name of God. Now, the concern is so great here that Paul actually names the human perpetrators. We note this in verse 20, Hymenius and Alexander. Now, we don't know exactly who these men were. There are hints, but we don't know exactly. It doesn't really matter. But most likely, their identity needs to be connected with that false teaching that Paul has already condemned. Those who were teaching myths, those who, who were generating endless speculation about genealogies, uh, those who were uh, falsely teaching the Old Testament law. But notice, they've rejected the faith, actually. They've made ship of their faith. They were followers of Christ for a time and now they have departed. But they were with the church in the church long enough to infiltrate themselves as teachers. We, we, we cannot not see the significance of what Paul is teaching. The New Testament is teaching. The great enemies of the truth arise from within the church itself. And they are in the church a sufficient season so that their presence can be called an infiltration of the church itself. Uh, if you've ever read much of the Cold War, espionage kind of thing, uh, a constant and recurrent theme is that the Soviets sent people to the United States trained fully to look and be like American citizens. False papers. Uh, in special camps in the Soviet Union, uh, cities set up to look exactly like American cities, American television. They had no trace of a Russian or a Slavic or an Eastern accent. They would train these people, some to sound like New Englanders, some to sound like Midwesterners who say water, 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 or Washington, as opposed to wash and water. Uh, and then, you know, West Coast people like us who speak English naturally and correctly. <laughs> Uh, so they would train these people so that they would be unnoticeable, so that they would not be discernible until their true identities would become revealed by what they would promote, what they would begin to politically agitate for. You, you don't know within the church the infiltrators until they have reached the point of some level of teaching, some level of exposing what their true motivations and true designs happen to be. But there comes a point when what they're saying and what they're doing is a rejection of the faith, where they have reached the point of clearly demonstrating that they're enemies of the gospel of Christ. Now let's draw some application here. Don't be surprised when some favored national Christian person 
takes a left turn. And you're going, where did that come from? Don't be surprised when some big name who is the son of some big name, who has a big ministry, begins to say, we need to disconnect Jesus from the Old Testament, which has been happening in the last two years. Don't be surprised when this happens. But most importantly, don't think it can't or won't happen within our own fellowship of churches. Don't be unprepared. Or rather, be prepared in the way that Paul wants Timothy to be prepared to understand and to see these things. Now then, that leads to how do we address it? What are the qualifications for properly addressing these enemies who arise from within the ranks of the church? Well, the response qualifications that Timothy needs would be to have the very things which these men have rejected. Note what they've rejected. Uh, Paul speaks of having rejected these, they have made shipwreck of their faith. What did they reject? They rejected that faith and a good conscience. Now, when Paul mentions faith and a good conscience here, we have to go back to verse 5 and recognize that here in verse 19 or so, he's abbreviating those virtues that he's already stated are absolutely necessary if we're going to teach the gospel and God's truth in the proper way. So back in verse 5, he speaks about how we must aim at love from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith. Those are the qualities that Timothy must anchor himself into. But it's the opposite of those qualities or the rejection of those qualities which are characteristic of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, see, they don't have pure hearts. They actually have ungodly motivations in what they're doing. They don't have a good conscience. In fact, they are hypocrites in terms of what they are teaching. And they don't have a sincere faith, no. Uh, they're counterfeits in what they believe and what they're promoting. Timothy himself must be fully equipped with, committed to, and demonstrating these virtues a pure heart, godly motivation in everything that he does. A good conscience, meaning he's going to live and teach without being a hypocrite in what he lives and teaches. And then a sincere faith. A faith that is genuine, pure as gold. A faith that truly reflects his submission to the authority of the Word of God in every way. Paul is going to visit this with Timothy again in chapter 4. He's going to bring it up in verse 16 in chapter 4. I want to read you what it says there in terms of three translations. In the ESV, Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. New American Standard. 
play, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. NIV. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. And it goes on to say, because if you persist in this, watching your life and doctrine closely, you're going to save both yourself and your hearers. Meaning, you're going to protect what's been entrusted to you, the truth of the gospel. And you're going to be able to protect what's been entrusted to the church, the church which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. What kind of man must you be if you're going to address the human enemies of the gospel? You yourself must be someone who watches his own life and doctrine closely because you're going to have to step into the fray in such a way that you're going to be able to say without hypocrisy what you're teaching is wrong. You're going to be able to, to you're going to have to be able to judge your doctrine carefully. What you're teaching is wrong. Only if you hold to the faith in all of its purity. And you cannot speak with the authority of God unless your own motivations are right with God, if you're doing that from a pure heart. And you cannot hope that you're going to be doing so in love to reclaim a sinful human being unless you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Then the third point. What actions then have to be taken in order to protect the truth and to protect the church? We see it in verse 20. Speaking of Hymenaeus and Alexander, this is what Paul says. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now first, note how strong the language is. To hand over to Satan. Now, we're going to explain what that means in just a moment, but I want you to notice this much. The language is not just strong. It's exceptionally strong. You can't do anything worse to somebody than hand them over to Satan. Maybe to the IRS. But that's a worldly thing. There's nothing worse you could do spiritually than to hand someone over to Satan. But it's not harsh. It's not unkind. It's not unloving. Paul wouldn't contradict himself when he says that the aim of everything that he does is love. What it indicates, though, is that the harm that is done to the church is so significant, it is so severe, it is so strong that the response must be proportional. You can't just overlook great evil that is done against the church. You can't. And you can't just blithely forgive, let, let go of it, the one who has brought this harm upon the church. You can't. These men shipwrecked their own faith. But do you not think that as they sunk, 
they were not taking others down with them? Teachers do not fall alone when they fall. They are heavy anchors that others are connected to. When they drop, others are pulled with them. Now the meaning of handing over to Satan Our knowledge and understanding of this is inferential, but it's inferential in a very good and strong and biblical and theological way. But the place to go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because that's where Paul first uses this term in the scriptures as we have them. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in sections and make a few comments. Paul writes to the Corinthians, a troubled church, a church that he loved, a church that was magnificently gifted in all the charismatic gifts, but a church that was deeply fractured because of its issues and problems. So he begins to address one in chapter 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now here's what's significant. For the destruction of the flesh, that does not mean his physical body. The word flesh here represents the old nature of the human being and indwelling sin. That's the Pauline understanding all the way through. For the destruction of the flesh so that he can be condemned to hell? No. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is the trajectory of Paul's discipline and handing this man over to Satan. It is for the sake of his salvation. It is in the hope of his salvation. It is done with that great, most loving kind of intention. Verses 6 and 7, though, Paul is now rebuking the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are eleven. Now his point is, it doesn't take a literary genius to get it, sin is like leaven. And as leaven will work all the way through the lump of dough, so sin within a church will work its way all the way through the church and influence and affect and infect everyone. Because if you're part of a church that tolerates unbelief, or if you're part of a church that tolerates immorality, you have been impacted by it and diminished by it. The evil that is present and goes unrebuked and unaddressed is an evil that you now participate in and with. As you're joined to the body of Christ... And the church tolerates what is evil. You tolerate what is evil. 
contrary to the truth of the living God. So, going on, verse 9 to 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers, idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then Paul says something very important. That's why I began the message the way I did. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul has been consistent all through his ministry to protect the truth and to protect the church. That which is the enemy of the church must be addressed. And when they are human enemies and they are not repentant, then Paul says, such must be handed over to Satan. Now, the consensus of good, solid, biblical New Testament scholarship is this. As there is the domain of Christ, there is the domain of Satan. The domain of Christ is the church, the visible church, the local church. And the church larger than the local church, but for us it would be our local congregation. The domain of Satan is those who are outside of the church. So to deliver someone over, to render that judgment is simply, ultimately, to excommunicate them from the membership and fellowship of the church. It's to put them out. As Jesus would say, and as he has said in Matthew chapter 18, in verses 15, 16, and 17, uh, such a person should be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. And in, to the Jews of that day, a Gentile and a tax collector would mean an unbeliever, and someone whose life is characterized by being unfaithful to the Jewish people by virtue of their avarice and greed as tax collectors. Handing over to Satan. Taking this action. Purge the evil from among you, Paul says. Protect the church. Protect the truth. Now, what's the purpose? We've said it before, say it again. The purpose is ultimately toward their salvation. Paul says, with respect to Hymenius and Alexander, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's like in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5, For the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Discipline against those who are the enemies of of the church, who have risen from within the church, who've displayed themselves now as having shipwrecked their faith, the discipline is designed to reclaim them, if this is possible, for the sake of love. Paul's going to emphasize this again to Timothy when he writes his next letter. 
So I want to bring this to a conclusion this way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 to 26, Paul writes to Timothy in these words. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He has just spoken about the kinds of things that aggravate quarrels within the church. The Lord's servant, meaning Timothy, elders, leaders, all of us, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. God made us for kindness. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So how do we engage the enemy? With truth? With love? Why do we engage the enemy? To reclaim them for the sake of Christ. Always remembering the trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul could say, of whom I am the foremost. Well, if Paul's the foremost, the chief of sinners, I'm thankful I'm not. (laughs) But we're all sinners, right? Christ came to reclaim us. So how could we ever see someone who's made himself an enemy of the gospel except with a heart of love and compassion and prayers and hope, God, please, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth so that they may escape the snare of the devil who is holding them captive to do his will. May God always give us the grace and the empowerment to be the church, to do the business of the church, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Amen. Oh, Lord God, uh, give us hearts of compassion always for one another, always, Lord, for the church, but give us discernment, we pray, Lord. We pray that we would be those who would uh, not be shocked when we see uh, ungodly behavior or ungodly teaching, that we might understand what is our calling, Lord, what is our calling in such circumstances, Uh, to do all we can to promote the truth and protect the church by working to reclaim those who have gone astray. This we would pray, Lord, this we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.